This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. What will differentiate who gets real value out of the use of that digital tool is have you put in place the necessary process and people to wrap around that technology to actually get the results. And that's where I think we spend a lot of time is not about tech alone. It's about how you use it and what you surround it with in order to make it successful. Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Kelly Richard, and today we'll be discussing virtual health from strategy to execution. With me on the podcast today, I have Eric Jensen, Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Avia, and our very own virtual health expert, Brianna Motley, Principal on the Intelligence Team. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. Eric, tell us a little bit about yourself, your role at Avia, and what it is that Avia does. Sure. We founded Avia back in 2012. So I've seen the arc of the company's growth over the last nine years. And as every startup, we've gone through our twists and turns over that time frame. But where we've landed and really resonated in the market is we have become a member-driven professional services firm that really supports our members with their digital health transformation aspirations. In the early days, we helped source and identify potential venture-backed solution companies that health systems might work with. But today, we're asked for a broad swath of support needs spanning digital enterprise strategy work to building certain digital capabilities to solution selection and change management. It's been a lot of fun to see the company's evolution over that time frame. Let's do a quick status check on the progress that health systems have made toward utilizing digital technology to serve patients. They were really forced to do that during the pandemic. From your perspective, where are we now? Have we truly increased adoption? Was it just a Band-Aid during the pandemic and are we going to bounce back to the in-person setting? Eric, let's start with you. I'm excited to hear Brianna's answer on this because I know SG2 has a lot of data and perspective on where the industry is heading. But maybe I'll just start first off by saying it is interesting that prior to COVID, very often we would go into health system boardrooms, executive C-suite conversations, and we'd be making the case for why digital matters, why this needs to be a top priority. And what has changed is we no longer need to make that case. Every single C-suite leader, is absolutely clear that this needs to be a critical pillar in their overarching strategies. In the space of virtual health, it's interesting. I'm sure you've seen the data. In April, May of last year, upwards of 50% of visits were virtual for all sorts of various conditions. And that dropped pretty quickly as we got into the summer months and it's kind of continued to peter out. The last data I had seen was that on average, somewhere in the mid-teens to low 20s has been sort of a, a number that I've seen thrown around. Psychiatric care is one of the outliers. It's really stayed high pretty consistently. I'm not sure that we're ever going back in the behavioral health space. It's also important to look at this from the vantage point of what different stakeholders outside the health system, like how they're viewing this space. From a consumer perspective, all the data and information I've seen is consumers really valued this and embraced it and saw the convenience and benefits of being able to get access to care virtually. As you might imagine, there's differences based on socioeconomic conditions that drive that. But by and large, consumers are willing to embrace that. 
The last thing I would say is outside of health systems, it is pretty clear that the disruptors have embraced virtual care as a mechanism for increasing their reach, building scale and driving efficiencies. Lots of interesting M&A activity in the market over the last 12 months, whether you look at the Teladoc to Livongo merger, Bright Health acquiring Zipnosis, which is kind of an interesting play from a payer angle, Amwell acquiring SilverCloud to extend their behavioral health capability. So lots of frenetic activity underway within the market. That's exactly right, Eric. So I will not refute anything that you've said or any of the numbers that you cited. That's certainly in line with some of the trends that we've seen, for sure. Coming back to your initial point about being in boardrooms and not having to make the case anymore. I think I was on a phone call just yesterday where someone said, we don't need to talk through the trends. We don't need to talk through the volumes, the forecasts. Let's just get to a plan because everybody recognizes that now is the time and this is so critically important. The leveling off around the eight to 20% or mid-teens to low 20s overall. Certainly, that's what we've seen from a post-initial spike. And there is variability by service line. The good news that we always point to is that's far and above where we were pre-pandemic. Even though things have fallen back a little bit, we've still advanced the ball in terms of where virtual visits are. And then in terms of looking toward the future, our forecast shows some of what you were pointing to. Behavioral health visits, that's where we think the greatest potential is in the long-term view that trend, which is roughly 50% is what we're projecting by 2029. That's far and above the overall average of virtual visits. Visits that will be virtual by 2029, we think that'll settle in that 29% range. Certainly more use cases for service lines like that, certainly primary care as well, a little bit less so in orthopedics and spine and women's health. Just a follow-up question there really for the both of you. Given that health systems that have had to roll out a digital health platform really quickly and maybe it wasn't very robust, do you think that the bounce back could in part be due to the fact that they don't have the best technology that's as easy to use as it could be for both the providers and the patient? How do you see that changing as we look into the future and additional uptake for virtual health? I think that's certainly part of it, Kelly. We've had strategic conversations with organizations. There's a little bit of a balance of we're not set up in the right way to be able to do this efficiently and at scale. It's a change in culture and a change in mindset. When it comes to our physicians, it's much easier in some cases for them to do their visits in person. The other factor there that's important to consider is reimbursement is still an uncertain bubble. We don't know which direction CMS is going to head in terms of payment parity, and people are a little bit hesitant to move on this for the long term without having a clear picture on what will happen. The flip side of that, though, is Eric's point about consumerism and about how patients are embracing this. And I think a critical question for health systems to ask themselves is if you're not planning to move in this direction with a scalable platform, the competitive market certainly is heating up day by day. And it's the innovators and disruptors, then it's also the payers. So having a long-term strategy here is important. From my vantage point, I actually don't think it's the technology that is the issue. It is a combination of culture around, hey, we need to put the hands on the patient to really know what the condition and situation is. And to be very clear, I'm not a clinician by training, so I won't offer perspective on whether that's the right orientation or not. But I think it plays into some of the trends, some of the issues that Brianna hit on around just process and organizing around how to be able to deliver on this consistently. We ran a 
work group with, I think it was like 18 different health systems earlier this year that was all oriented around, we did all this virtual health work last year. What do we do next? Do we keep what we're doing? Do we need to sub out technology? Do we need to have a, a different stack to be able to do that? And then how do we think about organizing in order to be able to optimize the results? Maybe just the final thing I'll offer in response to the comment about reimbursement, which is absolutely a real one. You know, I hear this come up very regularly with our clients. It's kind of interesting to think about that through the lens of how a technology company might view that issue. Maybe this is an unfair analogy, but if you were going to get into making flat screen TVs, 10 years ago, and the prices are $1,500 for a TV, but you know they're going to be a far lower price in the coming years. Does that prevent you from getting into the space? Tech companies fully expect that prices will come down. And the bet that they are making is that they can stay ahead of the curve and that technology and digital specifically will allow them to do so with even greater margin. You mentioned it's partially the culture of the docs and the providers that maybe has prevented further or earlier adoption. Do you think that a health system strategy should be based around more of a platform or a full service? You had mentioned Teladoc, Livongo. Many of our systems may think they're taking some of our market share, at least even if they're taking the lower acuity, they could direct them to other health systems. So in your opinion, is it one or the other? Is it both? Does it depend on who you are and what your resources are? Well, it's interesting that you use that term platform because I think our latest, we've called it the digital imperative talk, but our latest boardroom conversation has been oriented around what does it mean for a health system to think about being a platform in the tech space. The idea of being a platform is that you are bringing together supply and demand for something, whether that is data, information, services, but that the platform provider does not need to always be the supplier. Sometimes they are. Amazon has their whole suite of Amazon basic services or products, but there's a whole host of other things that they offer that they don't own. It's an interesting question for health systems to think about what would that suggest their footprint looks like from a service line perspective on a go forward basis. If they viewed themselves as the platform where consumers came, so they're the point of entry in the community or otherwise. And so I don't have answers there, but I think there's some really critical questions that should be asked through that lens of what would it mean to serve and act as a platform? That is so interesting, Eric. <laughs> I think we've been bouncing around some similar questions in terms of what does it mean for you to not do it all? So we tend to think of it as you are the connector, but there are certain things that you're going to have to seed because you're just simply not set up to be the supplier of that service. One more thought related to that is that role in directing or being the channel at that point. And I think immediately of the payer when we're talking about that. And will we get to a point where the payer says, no, we're asking for, in many cases, virtual visits first before you go in in person. And I wonder how realistic that is. And then also the thought of do health systems have the ability to do that at scale or would they need to maybe have a partner that is 
is really good and efficient at doing that? No one knows the answer. Whether I know the answer or not, I have a perspective. So payers are entering the space for sure. I had already alluded to the Bright Health example earlier with the acquisition of Zipnosis. Zipnosis was principally serving healthcare providers. And so you can imagine that asset being used in a different way. Now, Bright Health is interesting because they're an exclusive provider network. So they're really kind of narrow and trying to drive their members to individual hospitals. So open question how virtual care starts to play into that. The other thing is, I don't think it's as black and white of virtual health mandated or not, because there's all sorts of interesting things that can be done around patient incentive, zero copay or co-insurance versus an out-of-pocket for in-person. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but those games are things that payers know extremely well. Turning the dials on copays, coinsurance, deductibles are things that they are highly attuned to what works and what drives behavior changes. So I think that's something that's in their toolkit. From the health system standpoint, but can you do that at scale and at scale enough to be able to compete with payers who have these offerings? I think that's a very real question that has to be answered. When we think about digital health more broadly, is it more than just switching from where we currently are in doing the in-person visit to a video visit? And Brianna, I know that you have sort of a framework that we've used. How do you categorize the digital capabilities when we think about how healthcare can be delivered differently through new technology? It's so much bigger than virtual visits, which for us makes it exciting. I think for health systems makes it incredibly complex, which was part of the reason that we did develop the framework. We tend to think of it in some of the comments that Eric made earlier in the discussion around cultural change and being transformative and how you think about this space. That has to be embedded pretty deeply into your culture and your mindset, because when you make the shift towards digital to be successful, you have to really embrace that this is a different way of delivering care. It's still core care delivery, but it's just a different modality of delivering care. So we've tried to organize it into essentially three different kind of phases of the patient journey. The first being consumer engagement and activation. And this is where a lot of the solutions in terms of online scheduling, in terms of your digital front door, virtual triage, we know that those are top of mind for systems right now. But that's all of the before the consumer is engaged in their care and you're trying to kind of hook them into the system part of the care journey. Then there's patient assessment and intervention, and that really comes down to core care delivery, whether that be in the inpatient setting or in the ambulatory setting, but how can digital enable care delivery for patients in a different way? Virtual visits, virtual nursing assistance in the inpatient setting, clinical decision support, all of that type of digitally enabled care delivery, and then patient monitoring and management as the third phase. So your traditional remote monitoring, certainly being more proactive and engaging consumers in their care with wearables and mobile health apps and solutions like that. The thing that we've kind of struggled with in the framework and intentionally didn't lay it out as a spectrum because there's so much intersection among all of those phases of the care journey. And that's an important thing to recognize. So ideally, when you think digital is the backbone that enables kind of care delivery in the digital sense among all of those phases, but they're not in sequential order by any means. When in an ideal state, we'd be using digital technology to avoid any care intervention because we've engaged the patient and being proactive about their care. I like that framing of thinking about it through the lens of of sort of the patient journey. 
it's important for health systems to think about the opportunity for virtual health at the intersection of what is the modality and what is the condition. We've talked a lot, whether explicitly or implicitly, about some kind of video-based or telephonic kind of interaction, but there's real opportunity both up and downstream from that. Upstream asynchronous care is absolutely real and has real promise for low acuity conditions. And then downstream, or at least higher acuity, there's real opportunity in the hospital at home domain, both because of regulatory changes that have been made by CMS in response to COVID. The acute hospital at home program that was introduced in November of last year now has 175 different approved hospitals that have the green light to provide care for over 60 clinical conditions in the home. This entire conversation just reiterates that digital is here, the future is now, and health systems really need to be grappling with these opportunities and risks. Eric, when you're working with members that essentially have a digital strategy, how do they prioritize capabilities? Well, as you might imagine, it varies very much from institution to institution, and some are more strategic than others. There's certain instances where a priority is whose pet project is it that has energy and, and passion. From our vantage point, we would say all the digital activities should be viewed through the lens of what really improves patient care and experience, and then secondarily, what's going to drive business results. We've encouraged health systems to not think about just planning strategy, but ensuring anytime you're going through a strategic planning exercise, ask the question, okay, in achieving this goal, what is the specific role that digital is going to play? Because if you're not systematically asking that question, you're probably thinking in a way that is too incremental to be able to drive real meaningful improvement and change. Absolutely. And when you're thinking about any major challenges that are coming up, such as culture, translating specifically the strategy into a work plan and really executing on that strategy, what are the biggest barriers that you come across? There's a number of things. As we've done strategy, what we typically observe is that strategy is either done at such a high level that people within the organization immediately say, well, now what? What are we supposed to do this? Or it's done at such a detailed micro level that the big opportunities don't get sufficient resourcing and really sort of move the needle. So I think there's something about the strategic planning process really filling in that middle level, like the big rocks that are really going to matter. But aside from sort of the process, what we typically see is there's a lot of education and change management that has to happen to get people comfortable with what role these things can play. It's rarely about the technology. I mean, a lot of people will spend time saying, hey, Hey, there's like a hundred companies out there. Like, what is the very best one? From my vantage point, I'd say, look, if you're working with one of the top two or three organizations that really has an established customer base and has really strong references, it probably doesn't matter whether you're working with the first best one or the third best one. What will differentiate who gets real value out of the use of that digital tool is have you put in place the necessary process and people to wrap around that technology to actually get the results. It's not about tech alone. It's about how you use it and what you surround it with in order to make it successful. One final question. Eric, do you have any examples of sort of a successful translation of digital strategy for a health system that you can share? We have been increasingly asked 
to build digital explicitly into enterprise strategy works. And I think why we've been called on to do that is we have frameworks that are organized around digital capabilities. I think we've identified 180 different capabilities. I think it gives health systems comfort that whatever they plan at a big picture level can be translated into actionable opportunities. Those frameworks kind of serve as that connective tissue. So right now we're working with a major academic medical center in the Southeast to do that exact thing in parallel with their five-year strategy planning process. It's been fun to be a part of that. It's one part analytical in, in terms of being able to say, okay, what's the competition doing? What could they do? What is the upside opportunity from uh, deploying some of these things? What's the downside risk of inaction? And then it's another part, just organizational alignment work, because I think everybody has a different point of view on what's most important and how to accomplish it. So we'll see the results over the coming years, but we've been really excited to be at the table and part of that process with this particular organization. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us today. Thank you, Brianna. This is fantastic and really interesting to hear how the strategy that SG2 does meets the translation that Avia is working on. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.